0: So, like I've said, um, I'm a PhD student, I just realised last week that uh, it was my sixth freshest week and that is a depressing thought, <laughs> that while the rest of you are out, get, like the rest of my friends are out earning money, doing proper jobs, I'm still a student. <laughs> but I did, however, get 20% off these trousers <laughs> <laughs> from being a student, so there's silver linings. So. Behind you you can see um, the Palm Pilot M105, I hope, yeah? Now this is a cutting edge in early 2000s PDA technology. I don't know if anybody, did anybody else own a Palm Pilot M105? Yeah? This this was an incredible piece of kit. Uh, It had eight megabytes of RAM. It was uh, about this thick and you couldn't charge it, it ran off three AAA batteries. And this was uh, one of my first gadgets as an 11-year-old boy. It was uh, very useful for organising my diary, <laughs> for making appointments with my friends, for playing the latest high-tech black and white games. And if anybody's got an iPhone, you'll know that there's an absolute joy that When you press a button, um, it works, and it does exactly where you... What it, do, it presses exactly where you press it. Now, the Palm M105 wasn't quite as sylph-like. And there was this um, process that you had to perform. And anyone that owned an early touchscreen device would be familiar with this little screen that you can see behind you. This is called the calibration process. Um, So basically, for those of you that are uh, too old, too young to remember, uh, the calibration process, basically, you had to press on these little dots in the corner of the screen. Uh, And it was quite kind of fun. And basically, uh, what it would do is it would sync up your PDA or whatever you were using, to the screen. So that uh, whatever you press would be in sync with uh, the screen. So I don't fully understand the technology behind it. Basically, the idea is that somehow the software and the screen get out of sync. And that's, those, those first few hours of um, touchscreen were an absolute joy in precision. Uh, you, you'd never known precision like it before. Now, Peter, one of Jesus' first followers, said this, and I like to think that he's Kind of talking about a kind of calibration process he says i will always remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have i think it is right to refresh your memory as long as i live in the body and uh, the tent of this body so if you're anything like me uh, sometimes you need recalibrating. perhaps not physically But over time, the things that we value, the things that we care about, lose slip on our actions. So even though we know that it's really important to give uh, food, to give money to the poor, something that Christian reminded us about um, a few weeks ago, it's actually just easier um, to spend the money on CDs and books um, when you've got the Amazon app on your phone um, and you've got Amazon Prime and it comes to your door the next day. That's just easier. And, and it's not that I don't value giving money to the poor, but actually my, my actions and my values somehow get out of sync. And I, I know that it's important to love my wife. I know that it's important to be kind to her. I It's important to be nice to her. But actually, when, when she's lost her phone for the 15th time in the week, you know, it's, it's not always easy for your values and your actions to match up. You dropped your phone down the toilet too For those of you that can't hear, uh, my wife kindly reminding me that on Friday night I did drop my phone down the toilet. (coughs) Thank you. (laughs) So, it's important to recalibrate ourselves. It's important to get our actions and our values in sync with one another. And as Peter says, as human beings, we forget things easily. We forget the things that we care about and we need to remind ourselves. So today we're starting this new series called Centre Church. And the idea over this next four weeks is that we recalibrate as a church. We're going to be focusing on some questions that that maybe we often take for granted as a church. What does it mean to be the church? Why do we exist? What are the things that we should be doing? What are the things that we should be valuing? And today we're going to think about this question, what is the gospel? And the gospel is um, the most foundational truth that we all share as Christians around The world. But sometimes maybe we let this slip. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves what it is, what's so important about the gospel. So this week we're going to think a little bit more about how we can be a church that is gospel-centred. And then next week we're going to take on some of this theology, some of this story of the gospel, and we're going to think a little bit more practically about what does it actually look like for us. How do we live in light of this story of the gospel that we've heard? And then in our third week, Miriam, who you've just seen, is going to come and speak to us about being a city-centred church. How do we exist as a church that focuses on the needs of our cities? How do we strike this balance, this difficult balance, between being um, culturally, culturally relevant, but still holding on to um, values of truth? And then in the final week of October, we've got a guest speaker coming. Um, his name is Mark he- also happens to be my dad. <laughs> um, and so dad um, works in Sheffield Diocese as the director of parish support. And basically his job is to help churches figure out how to do this stuff, how to um, how to operate better as churches, how to tell more people about Jesus. And so I thought it would be a good opportunity to invite him to come and share some of that with us. So he's going to be helping us think about how can we be a church that is movement centred, a church that, that isn't just about building itself up, but which moves and which reaches out to other people. Good, so hopefully you know a little bit more about where we're going over these next four weeks. But today, as I said, we're going to start our recalibration process by thinking about the gospel. And the gospel simply means good news. And put simply, it tells us um, about something that God has done. And according to the writers of the New Testament, where we get a lot of our ideas about our Christian faith, and something that guides us, um, the gospel is something that shapes everything we do. And if you want um, a potted summary of it, you might think of it like this. Something was broken, God fixed it. This is the piece of news that is the most central to the Christian church. And for lots of you here, it'll have... Um, plenty of different connotations. Some of you um, will kind of recoil at the idea of the gospel. Um, you might think, oh, it's a bit of a Christian buzzword, I don't, I don't know, I don't really know what it means. Or maybe I've just heard it so many times, I don't really feel passionate about it. But some of you will feel quite excited. Um, we've got Rachel, who's been staying with us uh, these past two weeks, um, and she said to me, I'm so excited to hear your talk this week, because you're talking about the gospel. So Rachel just loves that, um, that word. That word has great connotations for her. But the, the problem is, um, as Christians, that we need reminding of what the gospel is about. Sometimes, even though this is um, a really foundational truth, it can, it can get out of sync a little bit. And so today, all I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you four stories. And all of these stories have got an element of truth to them. All of them try and present the truths about what God has done. But three of these gospel stories miss something crucial about the Christian story. They're just a little bit out of sync. And so I think it's important that we recognise where our thinking has slipped into this false gospel. That's what I'm going to call it, a false gospel. And where we need to be recalibrated back to the truth of God's gospel. So what I'd like you to do as I tell these four stories is try and hear yourself in these stories. Try and recognise where your thinking might have um, entered into these stories. And I pray that all of us will be realigned to the truth of what God has done. So let's start with false gospel number one. The gospel of works. So I've got a friend called Bob. That's Bob. And Bob absolutely loves Jesus. Uh, Bob loves serving his church G2 and in fact when the announcement came up a few weeks ago saying that we really needed people um, to put out more chairs at the beginning of the meeting Bob was really excited Bob loves serving the church every morning Bob gets up uh, he prays 30 minutes before he goes to work he reads bible sync on his ipad on the bus on the way to work and he volunteers his work his weekends to help the Beeson project And he gives precisely 12% of his income to G2. This is a man that I aspire to be more like. But actually, there's something that's not quite right with Bob. Bob's had to work pretty late at work over the last few weeks. And as a result, he's been sleeping through those 30 minutes at the beginning of his day where he used to pray. And in fact, uh, his boss has given him so much work that uh, he's really struggled to get to G2 at all. He had to ask his friend Paul Bryan to cover all of his shifts on the rotor, <laughs> and actually, Bob just, just started starts feeling really guilty. He feels like he's let God down. He feels like how can he possibly exist in this church anymore? And he goes to cell group and he enjoys cell group, but he stopped praying because um, he feels quite adequate next to his friend Paul Bryan, and he just doesn't know how to pray anymore. And so Bob can only really feel like. He's living out the gospel when when he feels like he can serve properly. Maybe Bob sounds familiar to you. Well, the gospel of works tells you that you need to do something to earn God's favour. That in order to receive blessing from God, in order to receive eternal life, that God weighs up all of our actions and then at the end of the day he says some people are going up, some people are going down. This gospel tells us That in order for God to ever love us, ever forgive us, we need to be a certain kind of person. But this isn't the truth. This is not the true gospel. The true gospel tells us that God has done something. Not that we need to do something. In Romans 1, Paul tells us that God has done something. That the true gospel is not a piece of um, good advice. It's a piece of good news. And as we'll go on to talk about next week a little bit more, the gospel has to change how you live. If if it doesn't change how you live, then something's gone wrong. But the first truth that we need to know about the gospel, the true gospel, is that whatever situation, culture, or country, or background that we come from, God has done something to make his relationship with us right. There's nothing that we can do to earn that favour with God. And if we don't grasp that simple truth, we end up in a situation a bit like Bob's, where we just feel like we can never get right with God. So that's uh, the story of poor old Bob. And if any of you actually know who that guy is, I'm very sorry. (laughs) So here's false gospel number two. And this one's got a bit more of a fancy title for you. Uh, This is the gospel of Gnosticism. And don't worry, I will explain the word in a minute. So this is uh, another one of my friends. She's called Jen, and Jen also really loves coming to G Two, and she really loves Jesus. In fact, the highlight of Jen's week is coming to G Two on a Sunday. She especially <laughs> likes coming when the handsome young philosopher is doing the talks, <laughs> and she absolutely loves the worship. Jen gets fully into the worship. She's like there at the front. She's got her hands up. She's experiencing the Holy Spirit. She is fully going for it. And she just gets an absolute buzz out of going to church. Whenever she drives anywhere, she puts worship music on in the car. She listens to Josh Cockane's back catalog of talks. She likes to think she's got a little mobile church there in her Vauxhall Corsa. And Jen finishes Sunday on an absolute high. She puts her head on the pillow and she thanks God for what an amazing day. What an amazing church she belongs to. And then Monday arrives. And Jen has to get up. She has to take the kids to school before she starts her work as, um, as a job as a cleaner. And she absolutely hates her job. All she can really think about when she's cleaning is how long it's going to be before Sunday comes. How long is it going to be before I can actually um, pray and worship and hear inspiring talks? There just feels like there's a massive gap between the things that she does on a Sunday, the spiritual side of her life, and then this other side of her life where it just doesn't seem to have any relevance. When she's putting her kids to bed, what what good does the gospel mean to her then? And actually, Jen really wishes that she could leave her job. She really wishes she could pack up her job as a cleaner, and maybe one day she would have enough money that she could spend all of her time just praying, standing out with her friends, serving the church, telling people about Jesus, and then, then she would be fulfilling the gospel. Then she would be truly happy. So, Gnosticism is, uh, is a group of ancient religions. And uh, to simplify, to oversimplify this a lot, this school, of, this school of thought tells us that there's a divide between the physical world and the spiritual world. So the things of the spiritual world are good and pure and are from God. And our bodies are made of physical stuff And these are bad. Having sex is horrible. Eating, drinking, they're awful. It's praying and worshipping that are really where we find our fulfillment. And this gospel tells us that this physical world, this horrible, evil physical world, will be destroyed. And that God will save us and we can live eternally in this state of euphoria where we worship him spiritually without our bodies and it'll just be like one long G2 for the rest of time. The writer Dorothy Sayers said this, How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? Can you hear how familiar um, that sounds to us? I think, honestly, Gnosticism could be one of the most difficult problems that we face um, as a Western church. The danger is that we preach a Christianity which has no relevance to nine-tenths of our lives. But the thing is that this kind of gospel is more influenced by someone like Plato than it is by Jesus or the New Testament writers. It's actually closer to Buddhism than it is to Christianity. This is what it says in the New Testament. Colossians 1, that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are being held together. The true gospel, which we'll go on to look at in a minute, tells us that God created this physical world, and he says that it's good, and that one day he will renew his creation fully. And if we don't get this truth right, if we don't understand that there isn't a divide between the things that are spiritual and the things that are secular, then we end up with a kind of Gnosticism when the only thing that matters about Christianity is that our souls are saved from this world. And then we start wondering what has it got to do with any of the rest of our lives? So we might be good at knowing that Jesus died to take our sins. But the problem is um, that we miss a whole lot of other stuff, which we're going to come onto in a minute. But before we do, let's meet um, person number three. This is false gospel number three, the consumerist gospel. So this is Barbara. Barbara. (laughs) And Barbara is a student at York University. And believe it or not, Barbara also really loves coming to G2 on a Sunday. She is also, like Jen, quite a fan of the talks. Especially the young philosopher chap. <laughs> uh, and she actually writes really detailed notes in the talks. I love it when Barbara comes to church because she sits there and I know that she's listening because she's always writing so much in her notepad. And even though Barbara is a poor student, uh, she doesn't have very much money, she knows that actually the coffee and the donuts and all of that stuff costs as money as a church. And she's got a regular standing order um, and she quite happily pays for um, church. But she does sometimes get a little bit irritated when uh, the vicar preaches. Uh, he's, he's just a little bit older and not as, quite as good looking as the young <laughs> philosopher. And um, then... These are Barbara's words, not mine. <laughs> and Barbara sometimes is just a bit worried. She just... She just doesn't engage with what he has to say to her. He's a bit boring. And you know what she really hates? She really hates it when we sing that song. You know the one with the really boring tune and the really long words. She doesn't even know what they mean. She absolutely hates it. She also um, is not a big fan of when we've only got crystal creams and not bourbon. And she has one surprise thought that. Um, just having a quiet word with James Welford, who, um, you know, coordinates a lot of our rotors. and just saying, James, you know, just make sure you get some Borgans, because it just makes a big difference to me. Yeah. Uh, but she doesn't want to be too much trouble, so she's decided not to do that. And actually, Barbara um, has been getting a bit dissatisfied. Even though she loves G2, she's been getting a bit dissatisfied. She's not really fed very well by the, the G2 meeting sometimes. And so actually, she started going to vineyard on a Sunday morning. And actually she finds that this is the best of both worlds for her because her needs are being met so well. At Vineyard, she can get filled with the Holy Spirit so much she's like fully going for it. She's, um, she's really engaged with it and she's on such a high. And Then she comes to G2 in the afternoon and she's just at that right level of spiritual excitement that she can engage with it really well. And actually, uh, Barbara's decided that is the way to do church. So... The writer Tim Keller says that there are two ways of understanding the question, what is the gospel? The first is that this question asks, what does it mean to be saved? And the second is that it asks, what is the hope for the world? And if we only ask the first of these questions and not the second, we get a picture of the gospel which is very centralised on me, on myself. And this way of understanding Christianity just sees Christianity as another service to bring spiritual goods into my life. So I go to Tesco's for my food, I go to the bank for money, I go to the gym for fitness, I go to my wife for companionship, and I go to the church for spiritual fulfilment. I go to Jesus for life after death. The gospel is good news, but it's good news for me. It makes me better. It makes me live life better. And really, all that I need to do is just get as many people along with me as possible. So here's the problem with this gospel the story of the gospel isn't just about me. Did you know that? It's not just about me. It's not just about me. It's not just about you. The consumerist gospel paints us a picture that Christianity is just another part of our lives. That what we eat, um, what we do, our relationships, our money, these all meet needs. And so does Jesus. But here's the truth gospel. The true gospel is that Jesus changes everything. This isn't just good news for you and you and you and you. This is good news for the entire cosmos. The entire universe is transformed by who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. This is not just a little thing. This is massive. In Romans 8, Paul tells us that the entire of creation is under bondage from the effects of sin. The entire of creation. And yes, I am part of that creation. And yes, I need to be restored. I need to know Jesus. But I am part of a bigger story. So do you recognise these people? Do you recognise Jen uh, or Barbara or Bob? Maybe not um, faithfully. But maybe you recognise some of what they value. Maybe um, you recognise some of these values in yourself. And actually, what's kind of appealing about these Gospels is that they're very close to the truth of God's Gospel. But they, they, they miss the point very subtly. And actually, um, sometimes we need to notice this in our thinking. We need to notice um, when we need to be recalibrated around the truth. And I'd actually say that, in fairness to all of my three brothers, they've actually got good intentions. They want to live a life of God. and They want to see people be saved. They want to know Jesus more. But I think all of them could do with um, a bit of recalibrating. So let me tell you a different story. This one's a little bit longer, and it doesn't have a picture of a cheesy person that you don't know. So here's chapter 1. ...of this different story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So before anything, God creates physical stuff. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates this universe we live in. And then he says, then it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our own image. In our likeness, that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock... ...and all of the wild animals and all of the creatures that move along the ground... God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God saw all that he had made and he said that it was very good. So, so the first thing that God, the Bible tells us about God's creation is that he created this world of trees and animals and plants and rivers and streams and skies and he said that it was very good. This physical world is very good. And actually, when we tell the gospel story, sometimes, um, when we tell the story of Christianity, it can feel like we're walking into a film about 15 minutes late. And we, we, maybe we get the story, right? maybe we kind of get into the characters a little bit, but there's just a, a little bit of something that we're missing. So you might... Is, is that his girlfriend or his sister? I don't, I don't really know. I mean, that makes a big difference to the plot of the film, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... You might wonder, how did, why, why is he still spreading thing out of his wrist? What's that like spiderweb stuff coming out of his wrist? How did that happen? That's not normal. And I mean, what is the, what's the drug lord got to do with the Catholic priest? I mean, I don't even know. So can you see, it might be a little bit confusing if we miss the beginning of the story. And I think we do this when we tell the story of God's good news, the story of Christianity. We're pretty good on the next two chapters. We're pretty good at knowing... That we are sinners, that we've done things wrong, and that we need Jesus to put us right. But without this first chapter, that God created creation, he created the world, we end up telling a kind of Gnostic story, where actually all God wants to do is save us from this physical world. We miss the plotline, the original purpose of creation. That actually, at the beginning of creation, God gave his creatures, he gave it us as human beings... A mandate. He gave us a purpose of how to live. He told us um, to rule over the earth, to work, to enjoy this physical world. He told us to have sex with each other in a marital context. <laughs> he told us to name animals. There is a job description for creation before sin enters the world. And human beings are made in the image of a loving, re- relational God. We're made in the image of a God who creates, a God who loves, a God who spends time with people. There's not a divide here between things that are of God and things that are not. Everything in the entire universe comes from the hands of God and it is very good. So we've got Adam, this beautiful physical man, created to be in relationship with God. Someone with a purpose and a design. And something goes wrong, so we've got chapter two of this story, which is called the Fall. So Adam and his newly, um, his newly created wife Eve have everything they could possibly want, but God tells them that there's one thing they cannot do. They can't eat the tree that's in the garden. They can't eat the fruit from the tree that's in the garden. And then comes along this crafty talking snake, um, who basically goes Eve into eating the fruit. Um, so so, God turned, so when he finds out what's happened, that Adam and Eve have eaten from this fruit, that they disobeyed him, um, God is pretty mad. And um, he tells them, he speaks these words over humanity. So the woman, he says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you have listened to your wife, So sin changes everything. Sin has a physical, a moral, an emotional, a spiritual consequence. Work becomes tiring. Childbirth becomes painful. Life becomes short and full of suffering. We get a contrast between a God who was a friend walking next to man to a time when sometimes it feels like God isn't even there. Everything in the universe is affected by this curse, by sin. And so often, I think, uh, we think really small with sin. We think that, um, actually, it's just about the little things that we do wrong. Maybe we told a little lie to our spouse. Maybe we swore accidentally at work. Maybe uh, we looked in the wrong place when that beautiful woman came on the TV. Maybe we got angry at our kids. But actually, all of these actions are a consequence of something that is wrong with our world. Something that is wrong with us. Something that is wrong with our hearts. And actually, if we don't get this right, we get into this kind of consumerist gospel. that actually, all that we care about is that God can heal me and make me a better person. And then when, when the talk isn't feeding the brokenness that I feel, when the worship doesn't connect me with God in that right way, there's something that's missing from our understanding. But it's so much bigger than that. Sin is the cause of every problem and every evil in the entire world. And we need to understand that, to understand how far astray we've gone and how much we need this next chapter in our story. So chapter three, God enters the scene. And this, I think, is one of my favourite passages in the entirety of the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing that has been made um, has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So here's the twist in the plot. And here is the centre of our gospel story. Here is the truth that um, we focus our entire church, our entire lives around. That God, who created the entire universe, entered history, entered time, entered space to set set right a world that was broken and far from him. He died on a cross uh, to take the punishment for sin, to conquer this curse of evil and to restore his creation to its perfection. And this truth single-handedly disarms every false gospel you could ever think of. There is nothing any one of you can do to earn this favour. And it is the entire cosmos that is under this damage of sin. The very purpose for which you were made has been damaged, but God, through Jesus, fixes it. Christianity is not a product to be consumed. Jesus changes everything. So it might be tempting to end the story on a high note, end it here and think we've wrapped up the gospel, we've understood it, job done. But actually I like to think of this a little bit like the end of Lord of the Rings, for those of you who've seen it, there's this big task. Frodo has got to take the ring into Mount Doom and get it destroyed. And there's this really long scene where he's going up the hill and he's like falling back down, getting back up. And finally he puts the ring in Mount Doom. And he's lying there on his back. And uh, Gandalf comes swooping in on this eagle like some absolute hero. And he grabs him up and you think, that is that, The story's finished. I'm content. I can switch it off now. I know everything that's happened. But actually, there's still a story to be told. We need to know how it ends. This is chapter 4, Renewal. This is from right at the end of the Bible. You'll find this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down, Let's not finish the story without its proper ending. The Gospel tells us that God, through Jesus, is in the process of renewing the whole of His creation. His plan all along is that He would bring His creation to its perfect purpose. The Gospel doesn't as much tell us that when we pray and accept Jesus into our hearts, we'll kind of float off to some heaven when we die, but it says that God will recreate the whole of this universe to be perfect through Jesus. God will renew his physical world and we'll be resurrected to dwell with him forever. The gospel, the true gospel, tells us that every piece of brokenness or suffering that exists, there is hope in whatever brokenness exists in this world. It says that when we see beauty, it will not be destroyed. It is a shadow and a reflection of the beauty that is to come. We aren't saved to leave this world. Christianity isn't something we just do at the weekend, but it's something that impacts everything we do. And I, for one, think that is a story that's worth telling. It's a story that's worth reminding reminding ourselves of regularly. And at the heart of this picture of the church, we hear these words, the new Jerusalem, which is essentially the people of God, the church. This is us guys. We are central to the story. What we do here on a Sunday afternoon has an eternal significance. But also what we do on a Monday morning as this church across this city has eternal significance. So how can we be a church that has this story at its centre? I'd like to, if it's okay, just press pause. Um, And we're going to carry on thinking about that question a little bit more next week. But I think sometimes there's just an an immense power in hearing the story of what God has done, of reminding ourselves about what the gospel is about. And sometimes with a talk, we've got three things that we write down on our phones that we're going to take away, and three little practical things we're going to do this week. And that's really useful. But sometimes I think our response Um, needs to be that we worship God, that we thank God for what he has done. And it's so important that we do this and we go out of here and carry on doing this in our weeks. So uh, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite Freya up and we're going to end by um, by worshipping God and thanking him for what he has done.